0: Presentation was given at the 9th Annual Farm Symposium on the Book of Mormon. The theme of the symposium was Benjamin's speech. The title of this lecture is Assembly and Atonement. The presenter is Hugh W. Nibley. Brother Nibley is an emeritus professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University. For additional information on this and other Book of Mormon subjects, call Farms at one 800 Three two seven six seven one five. My dear brothers and sisters, the subject of this talk, Assembly and Atonement, is an assigned topic. Assembly and Atonement, what is the connection? They both bring things together, but in a different emphasis. An assembly is a gathering at a set time or of similar things. The Atonement is a bringing together into a single unit. The search for the GUT, the Grand thesis has shown that the part can't exist without the whole, otherwise it wouldn't be part of anything. It would be the whole thing. And the whole can't exist without the part, otherwise, with a part missing, it would not be whole. This paradox is highly relevant to understand the atonement. At the late conference, we have heard of plans for a larger tabernacle. That word is the opposite of assembly hall, where everybody meets. A tabernacle, tabernaculum, is literally a little house made of boards. It's a quick shelter or a booth put together from boards, branches, bits of clothing. The word booth describes its purpose. Semitic bite, which means house, bada yabidu, meaning to stay overnight in a place. And, so, and certainly suggests our word bide to abide, abide with me, tis even tied. The Hebrew sukkah is the same word as the Egyptian sech, and they drew a picture of it. So it's a booth, all right. It provided shelter for an individual family in the open during the Passover. Thou shalt not hold the Passover within thy gates. There are no building there, so they had to come outside, leave their homes, and live in tents or booths. The Mormon is tents, same thing. The people whom Benjamin commanded to assemble, quote, gathered themselves together throughout all the land, and yet they all enjoyed a private family outing. For they pitched their tents round about, every man according to his family, and every man being separate from one another. That was so at the Passover, too. The families had to serve each in a circle with their backs to all the others. It was their own feast, their own private feast, for they left. This was the practice observed at the Feast of the Tabernacle. And the booths are one of the characteristic features of the great national assemblies of ancients throughout the world. As a culmination of celebration, we have both a vast union of the hallelujah shouts and the private thoughts, the secret names and whispered exchanges of initiation that proceeded and followed with name, seal, mark, person, registry. The whole thing is very personal, very private, very secret. Everyone is for himself, and yet they're all together, they're all identical, they're just all one group, they're all one happy family. It's a strange contradiction. Some today have trouble making a distinction between what is strictly private and one's thinking. Uh, after all, we're commanded to pray in secret, aren't we? And what is necessarily shared among all the members of the church? some would have uniform political commitment required of all members and some would have mission and state presidents prescribe what books may be read what music may be heard missionaries and so forth individual members well how far does free agency go here how far can an individual taste be assigned no one was more stalwart exponent of temperance than brigham young and yet when his father asked him to sign the temperance pledge that was going around, he resolutely refused. He said, I won't do that. What he, he objected to, of course, was being officially told what his principles were. He knew what they were, and he would do it for himself. So we have this, all this, this, this contrast between the individual and the group. Einstein begins his book, The World As I See It. And he says, a hundred times every day, I remind myself that my inner and outer life depends on the labors of other men, living and dead that I must exert myself in order to give the same measure as I have received, and I'm still receiving. He belongs to the community, and yet no one was ever more aloof and absorbed and private and original than Einstein. And still, he says, it's both his inner and outer life is dependent on the others. Committees don't think. They noodle. They throw things around. They drop suggestions. They send up flags and signals in hope that somebody may react with an original idea. But there's nothing of the deep, prolonged, concentrated thought of individual, or the brilliant flashes of insight that may result. Solon, the wisest of the Greeks and the Athenians uh, singularly were just too smart to believe in. He says they were too smart for their own good, but, individ- but collectively, he says, they're a set of simpletons. It's always gratifying to discover that a person, the members of a quorum, of a board, a committee, or a faculty are individually smarter than they are collectively. That's necessarily the case, since each one has certain ideas which would not be quite acceptable to everybody. Yet we still come together to consult. We still warm up with each other's presence. I might say family, friends, and church members, what St. Augustine said to God, you made us to be with you, and so our hearts are restless until we can be with you. And when we're all with you, we're all together with each other. As he says, intercourse at may. Well, as to the Great Assembly now, since I talked in Provo, people have asked me just what I mean by the Great Assembly or the year right. I can best sum it up from an article. See, we're dealing here in Benjamin with this Great Assembly. And it's an institution that was discovered since 1930. Now we know it was throughout the world. And so 1930, that's when the so-called Cambridge School gave it what they call the name Patternism. This great meeting follows the same pattern everywhere throughout the ancient world at all times and practically in all nations. I've written a good deal on that, published quite a few articles on that very subject. And so it's interesting to find that in the Book of Mormon, Mosiah describes it perfectly, blow by blow, an exact account of how it should be, how would he pick that up. Nobody knew about that, I said, before 100 years before his time. Well, I sum it up as I wrote 45 years ago, now beyond the statute of limitations. It is the Panagirist the means everybody met together in a circle. The great New Year's assembly of the entire race to participate in solemn rites essential to the continuance of its corporate and individual well-being. At hundreds of holy shrines, each believed to mark the exact center of the universe, that's where the temple stood, scale model of the universe. That expression is being used a lot today to describe temples. Everybody's writing scale model of the universe, that's what it is. It was the navel of the earth where the four quarters converge at the temple, one might have seen assembled at the new year. It had to be the moment of creation, the new year, the beginning of time, the completion of the age, and so forth. Vast concourses of people would come because they were commanded to come. If you didn't come, for example, in Scandinavia or in Rome, you would be banished from the kingdom for three years. You would lose your citizenship if you didn't attend that meeting. And everybody had to come. They had to bring their families and their children with them at the end of Zechariah. Remember so Samuel and his family, Samuel's family went up, Zechariah and his family went up to worship the Lord of hosts at Jerusalem. And the Lord says, "If you don't come, you'll get no rain. You will get no prosperity. You must come." So everybody was ordered to come, and so we see these vast concourses of people. Each stopped to represent the entire human race in the presence of all its ancestors and gods. When you would risk, uh, witness their ritual contests, they have the contests to determine the winners. Of course, they have foot horse, foot horse, foot races, horse races. Excuse me, wagon races, coral competitions, the Troy game the Calistea beauty contest to choose the queen, and especially now the famous year drama, in which the king wages combat, it's the creation drama and the temple drama, in which the king wages combat with a dark adversary, emerges victorious over death, to mount the throne for the new dispensation. The drama celebrated the creation of the world, the marriage and coronation of the king, the birthday of the human race, it culminated in a feast of abundance, the king having proven his capacity to bring prosperity and victory to the people. Those are the two things he had to supply, safety from their enemies and prosperity. And this is the, thing, the two things that Benjamin constantly keeps emphasizing. All these elements are present in Benjamin's celebration. The origin of the drama, both Greek tragedy and dramatic spectacles of the ancient East Near East, I'm quoting Eliada, scholar Mircea Eliada. He says it can be traced back to certain seasonal rituals which, broadly speaking, represent the following sequences. Conflict between two agonistic principles of life and death, God and the dragon, etc. Tragic suffering of the God, the lamentation at his death, and jubilation to greet his resurrection. The theme was to celebrate the resurrection. All these things brought together in this great meeting. And this is the meeting we have described in Mosiah. It's nowhere described in the Bible. You have to go here for it, and this is interesting. Uh, King Benjamin sums up the purpose of the meeting as at one moment to bring together man with God but also men with each other he says men don't swear loyalty to each other their common loyalty is to God but that unites them in the perfect possible and perfect to unity here in fact Benjamin continues he held the meeting that they might that they might give thanks to the Lord that they might rejoice and be filled with love toward God and all men it was a universal festival filled with toward love with God toward God and all men. That's the spirit of the great assembly everywhere. It recalls the golden age when men and gods lived together in heaven, in a heaven on earth. Well, since treating that subject in the Melchizedek Priesthood Manual for 1957, that was Lesson 23 in the manual, I have come upon more confirmation, such as a particularly interesting writing of Nathan the Babylonian, Nathan Hababli. He was a writer of the 10th century he's left us an eyewitness account of the coronation among the Jews, which we do not have in the Bible or anywhere else, or in the town or anywhere else. Here we have it. Here is a description of the coronation, just like Benjamin's coronation in uh, uh, Mosiah. It was the uh, coronation of the prince of the captivity, the exilarch the in Babylonian, the uh, Rosh, Hag- Rosh He speaks with the detachment of a Gentile, though he may have been a Jew, but he's he's a detached observer, and he tells how the Jews celebrated a coronation. This is what they did. Uh, Because the Jews in Babylon had lost their real king and yet wished to continue their ancient customs, it was necessary to choose a candidate. to have someone who was to be the king. They weren't allowed to have a king, in Babylon. It had to be the prince of the captivity. The chief men of the community came together to appoint the new exilarch, that means ruler or prince of the exile, from one of the most illustrious families. The elders then set him apart by laying their hands upon his head and sent out a proclamation that all should come to the coronation. Great and small, young and old, nobody was to be absent. And they had and each one had to bring the most costly present he could of gold, as it specifies, gold, silver, textiles, each which you could accord. Now notice that Benjamin, in a list of contrasts of contrasts between himself and conventional kings, expressly forbids this very thing. He says, I have not, sought gold or silver or any manner of riches for in coming here. So he's going to put things on a different level here. It's going to be the same assembly. The day before the affair, a wooden tower, as in the Book of Mormon, a wooden tower ten feet high and four and a half feet broad was erected as a speaker's platform for the king to be seen and heard by the vast multitude. That's how Benjamin arranged it, too. On the top was a throne covered by a baldachin, and on either side a lower level were seats for the two counselors. On the right hand, the school of Sura, and on the left, the school of Pumbadeva, the head of the school of Yeshiva. The, the tower was covered with costly materials, beside which at ground level a highly trained youth choir was concealed. Remember when King Benjamin descended from it, when he was through with his speech, he says, I'm about to go down to my grave. When he comes down from the tower, you see. As he comes down, the choir sings. That's what they do here. And he says, I go down in peace to my grave, and my immortal spirit may join the choirs above in singing the praises of a just God. Those voices from behind the veil were supposed to be voices from above. And the exilarch descent from the tower, well, we say, the Kazan, or the cantor, represents the old king. He began with a blessing on the congregation, followed by an antiphonal hymn of praise by the congregation. Now, There are exchanges all throughout the thing between the king and the people. They call out and he calls out and so forth. And this is important. This is unique. You notice in in the case of Benjamin. He not only accepts the people on equal footing, but they shout back to him as he shouts to them. Uh, All the people sing out, each one from his booths, uh, it says in in the Babylonian practice. So they stayed in their tents. They stayed in their tents, their tents facing the temple, their tents facing the, the tower here. And they all shouted together, but they stayed in their tents, which is a very interesting proviso. That's the, the families here. Remember, the families were separate from each other. They all faced the speaker in their tents, as in Mosiah's account. Well, the people rise and give the 18 benedictions, and then the king appears on the tower and sits on his throne between the two lesser thrones. Then all the people sit. The cantoral Lord sings, Redeemer of Israel, and all the people stand for prayer. Then all the youth shout, Holiness to the Lord, and then the Chazan puts his head and shoulders, into the bulk, now remember he's behind the veil here, which represents uh, the veil of the of the covenant, uh, of the tent, the caporet, uh, in the wilderness, which is the same thing as the veil of the temple. He puts his head and shoulders to the temple, and then he whispers to the king, and has exchange of names with him, see. Nobody else hears it but the boys that are sh- of the choir below that are closest, and when they hear the amen, then they all shout out amen, because now he's been made the king. But you notice the transfer of authority from the god to the king takes place as it does with Moses in the tent of the community, in the, tent of the, uh, in the tent of the atonement. Yes, when the blessing was ended, he whispered, so that only those nearby can hear. When the blessing is ended, the boys in the chorus shout, Amen, and all the people keep silent, and the king's West is completed. Then the prince of the captivity, having received his authority, he's a new king, he opens and teaches them on the subject of the day, which is the law. And that's exactly what he does. He's going to teach them the law and remind them and re- give them a refresher course. An interpreter or translator stands by a Targaman, because the people, their language then was Aramaic, and this record is in Aramaic, uh, and uh, the scriptures, of course, in Hebrew. So they needed an interpreter, and yet uh, mutargum stood by all the time. The king teaches a great passion, keeping his eyes closed, his head wrapped in a talit, as he talks for an hour. There's not a peep in the congregation, for if anyone utters a single word, he uncovers his eyes, and terror and dread fall upon all the people. Even so, Benjamin holds him spellbound in humiliation and really scares the daylights out of him. When the address is finished, there's a questioning period. A wise old man, a very shrewd and instructive, is the intercessor. Good question. Because Ann gives a New Year's greeting of long life. Long live our prince of captivity. May you all live long. We recall Benjamin declares, this is the day he has begotten us." Then Natalia. It's their birthday. That's when he shot long live, or, L'chaim. And everybody all shouted together. You see, because it's the birthday. Because he says, "This day has he begotten you." It's their, it's their birthday. You see, it's a, to a new life, a universal birthday. If the people brought the first fruits of the new year, which they did, we're told in Mosiah two and three, they brought the first fruits, which been for a new year celebration, to mark the new birth, uh, the birthday as a rebirth. The king gives the people a new name on that occasion. That's what you do at a birthday: give somebody a new name. He's born again. Then, as in Mosiah's account. There's a register of names of those present acknowledging those donations, remember. Um, Benjamin has all their names written down in a register. You always do register when you come to... You have to register, and it won't be a citizen unless you are registered in the books. They call that the Book of Life for the Earth. Then the Book of the Law was brought, and the priest and the Levite both read from it, after which the cantor, the old king, takes the book to the new exilarch, the new king, and all the people rise to their feet and he reads to them from the book of the law. As in Mosiah's account, the main purpose of the event is to give a refresher course in the law to the entire nation. To be interpreter of the royal teacher was considered a very high honor. Indeed, a rich and important man was chosen to to translate. Remember, they had to translate because of the difference between Hebrew and Aramaic. The prince is again blessed by the book of the law, which is returned to its place with blessings forever and ever. Then the people fall to and enjoy. What a feast, a sumptuous feast. He, he gives the menu and special emphasis on desserts, because this has to be a fun time. They're all relaxed after, after all that tension. As in Mosiah, there are frequent exchanges between the king and the people, the latter reciting in unison. Now, this is a funny thing. You have the odd circumstances in which people all cried out with one voice, and then they proceed to recite in unison all together three long verses. Well, have they got it all memorized? How, who told them to recite it all at once? Well, this is a common, this is a common exercise well, it had to have it at, at all at uh, the great celebration this way this is the way it was done um, It was done by Stazi the people would ask remember uh, when uh, Benjamin asked do you accept they all cry out with some We have we accept our eyes have been open we have seen this vision and so forth and so on Well, how did they do that all at once? Well, they had the stasiarch. Sometimes the king himself was stasiarch. That's the person who leads the cheering. He was a cheerleader. He stood in front of all the people with a flag, and they could all see him. And then someone would hand him a note. It would be sent down by the king or the governor, who it was. Or else someone would shout out to him, let's sing so-and-so-and-so. And then he would say, he would recite the first sentences, and all right together, after, recite after me, then he would wave the flag, they would all chant it together. That's why the people were to shout in a single voice, we have seen these things. They were told what to reply, and they all replied together, individually collectively, because they'd all had the experience individually. Sometimes the king himself chose to lead the cheering, and some Roman emperors, like Caligula, enjoyed it. There's no limit to what to be shouted in unison, and it could, in unison, and it could go on for hours. Well, now we come to his main theme benjamin's main theme which is a surprising one it's the nothingness of man he begins to talk on public policy by distancing himself from the conventional model of the year king of course mighty victorious glorious he disclaims any natural supernatural stasis for himself he's not the divine king not only is he not more than a mortal man as he says but he's sadly atypical, when he says, like yourselves, subject to all manner of infirmities in body and mind. What a confession. And yet we find ourselves everywhere that the nothingness of man is the theme of the great year they emphasize it everywhere. Professor Horing, the most celebrated Egyptologist of our time, says the coming together of the Egyptians to rehearse the creation of the world, the fall of man, etc., had three purposes. The first was to give some sort of explanation to the utterly wretched human condition on Earth, always on the brink of failure, always looking forward to death. Arthur Kessler and others have concluded that our race is a very sick biological product, and there's nothing we can do about it. We are programmed for failure. This emphasis on man's nothingness. Kessler himself, after a lifelong search, solved the problem by suicide. But the ancients had a better way. They dramatized the situation. As uniform as the protocol, of the protocol of the feast was the drama that went with it. It began with the council in heaven discussing the creation, the dispute over leadership that followed, the casting out of the adversary, the garden of Eden, the fall of man, and so forth. These marvelous temple plays, many of which have survived from very ancient times, give some solace to our sorry state of, by lending some majesty and dignity to it. But they went to the heart of the matter where our troubles are concerned. But they toss up their hands, they, they know the cause, in other words, in a dismal state, they don't know what to do about it. That's it. All their productions are tragedies. There, there is no solution to the problem. It's simply beyond them. The chorus is wail and lament. The lead players, like the lyric poets, wring their hands in despair. Oh, human race, says the chorus, I have calculated your worth and find it sums up to exactly nothing. Which is what Benjamin would say. Euripides' favorite concluding chorus was which he uses five times. The final line, for example, of the Oedipus Rex is toion huta problem. We just can't explain it. That's the way things are. The long tragic drama or trilogy of tragedies would be followed up by a slapstick comedy to make life endurable by laughing at it. Well, back to Hornung's second point, then, why does God leave man alone to suffer? That's the second one. Plato in the Republic accuses Aeschylus of charging God with aporia, Either he was helpless to save men or he willingly stood by and let them suffer. He was either weak or he was vicious. They never answered that one, as Omar Khayyam reminds us with wicked glee. Then the third point was the utter cruelty of of the shortness of life, the curtailment of human life. Long before any individual has had half a chance of using even a fraction of his potentialities, why are we over-endowed and then hustled from the scene before we can make proper use of our talents? It all seems so wrong. And here, of course, we have the difference between Benjamin's teaching and those of the Greeks and Egyptians. Many recent studies have shown the close resemblance between the ancient Hebrew and Egyptian wisdom literature. They reach the same conclusions about this world, the nothingness of man. Remember what the the Ecclesiastes says, the teacher, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight. That which is wanting cannot be numbered. I gave my heart to know wisdom, which is Solomon speaking, you see, and to know madness and folly. I perceive this also is a vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom there is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Now that is a negative answer. Man is a born loser. But it is here that the ancients part company with Benjamin, and they think they've seen it all, and so are guilty of both overrating and underrating themselves. The overrating is quite absurd, for Benjamin, he says, and now I ask, what can you say? Can you say out of yourselves? Nay, ye you cannot say that you're even as much as the dust of the earth. He's talking to his people. This is a boastful talk, isn't it? And even I, I, even I whom you call your king, am no better than yourselves. I am old and about to yield up this mortal frame. For even at this time, my whole frame doth tremble exceedingly while I attempt to speak to you. So you see, you it's not a proud display of power at all. At the normal year, right, the king was expected to be victorious in combat, majestic, irresistible, rampant, reproductive, etc. Then Benjamin really gets serious. For the natural man is an enemy to God and has ever been from the fall of Adam and ever will be forever and ever. Well, that finishes that, doesn't it? Unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit and put off the natural man. Now this was this. So all these people represented humanity as humanity. They were as natural as you could be. She said, we've got to make a big change here. Nephi frankly admits that entropy is the fate of natural man. That's what happens. He says this flesh must have laid down to rot and to crumble to mother earth and rise no more. That's the normal fate, He of the natural man. If nature had its way, it would be the second law. It would be entropy. Laid down to rot crumble to Mother Earth and rise no more. That's our finish. But, he says, well, Moses landing on Earth as a natural man is surprised to discover, as he says, now I know that man is nothing, which thing I never had supposed. Because he'd been up in heaven before. He saw the great glory of of the other world when he came down here. Down here we are nothing. That's the point he's coming to. He's a natural man. One verse later, no Moses announces, that he is nothing less than a son of God in the similitude of the only begotten. After saying that man is nothing, how can he build both? Down here he's nothing. This This is the point. After the king spoke, they had viewed themselves in their own carnal state even less than the dust of the earth. It really sunk in with the people. Benjamin rejoiced to see that the knowledge of the goodness of God has awakened in you a sense of your nothingness. He loves to rub that in. And your worthless and fallen state. You should remember, always retain in remembrance the greatness of God and your own nothingness, and his goodness and long-suffering toward you, unworthy creatures. If you do this, this is the payoff, it's worth the price. If you do this, you shall always rejoice and be filled with the love of God. There's nothing but fun here; You can't lose. And you will not have a mind to injure one another. This definition of the real world makes a nice contrast to what we call the real world today, where everyone is advised to learn karate, both to avoid and inflict injury. And then the cruelest cut of all, for behold, are we not all beggars. If we become too much attached to our earthly carnal state, Benjamin reminds us, that there is nothing for you here. You can't stay here. You should be glad that there's, this is not where you belong. During his lifespan on this earth, in which all are in the same situation, he says, the natural man is an enemy to God, carnal, sensual, and devilish. Or as we would say, oversexed, greedy, and mean, or perhaps lecherous, pampered, and vicious. Obviously, things are out of order down here. But if we're really nothing, how can we save ourselves? Somebody has to intervene, and here, with a sigh of relief, we learn that Benjamin has been tutored for this talk by an angel. He hasn't depended on his wisdom. This shocks us into realizing that we haven't seen it all after all. There may be more to life than going to the office every day. This is not all there is. is Where did we get all those gifts and endowments with which we enter the world and leave without ever using? This question of Plato's was repeated by Lamarck, To darwin's immense annoyance he called it an abominable paradox if if natural selection chooses only those defenses of which the creature has absolute need for survival why has our brain the capacity so outrageously exceeding our needs where did we develop it where did we need it if not in far more sophisticated environment than we have here where the stupidest species have survived the longest you don't have to be smart to survive here we are equipped for much greater things than we ever achieve and we yearn for something better than we can ever expect here, and yet we envisage it most vividly. This is what Plato calls anamnesis, dim memories of a better world that give us intimations of immortality. At the sight of the Kalos Kagesos, when you see something good, true, and beautiful, see? We are living in a dismal swamp between two glorious uplands. Why this unhappy interruption, though? Why do we have to come here? Life is an interruption, which consists almost entirely of an unbroken succession of interruptions, as we can hear All this is to try man and to tempt him, for in getting ready for the long pull ahead, he must learn to cope with the worst. So he comes to the principles of government. After discounting all of man's boasted claims to independence, of what are you to boast, he says, what can you say of yourselves, can you say aught of yourselves, and declaring himself satisfied with a place in the choir above while resigning his royal teaching job on earth, Benjamin lays down the first principle of government, which may appear very strange to us, it is a corollary to the nothingness of man. It is that there shall be no contentions among the people, lest they list to obey the evil. This is the end of side one. You may turn the tape over now to continue the program. It means to stretch a rope. Contender means to stretch your rope in opposite directions. It's a tug of war. The Lord's first words to the Nephites, after he'd introduced himself to them and told them how to baptize, were according, as I have commanded you, there shall be no disputations among you, as there have been, neither shall be disputations among you concerning the points of my doctrine, as there have been hitherto. See, it's the gospel I'm ta- talking about. For very, very, I say unto you, he that has the spirit of contention, there it is, you see, is not of me, but is of the devil who is the father of contention, and he stirreth up the hearts of men to contend one with another, and pull in opposite directions in anger, naturally, one against another. But this is my doctrine, that such things should be done away. Does one want to do away with the adversarial method, the two-party debate, the legal confrontation, which we consider the best means of settling argument? The trouble is that it settles nothing. As Clausewitz noted, political arguments lead to war, which simply, as quoting him, carries on the political arguments by other means. And then, so for a time after the war, diplomacy leads on to another war, and so on the next war, everyone exhausted and beaten, they go back to diplomacy, but they continue arguing. Have the year-long daily and nightly debates of the O.J. Simpson experts solved anything or reached any agreement among them? The plays are endless discussion and argument with the chorus and semi-chorus, the protagonist and antagonist constantly going at it and only making matters worse. The oldest surviving play begins with the king's announcing the program, pay this uh, uh, name, children, we must think this thing through, we must discuss it. So the play leaves us with the battle of the sexes, the battle of the races, the battle of the nations, all going full blast at the end of the play. As the ladies chorus, the Danaids express their loathing of Egyptian-style marriage, can't stand men of darker skin, the nations of Egypt and Argos exchange insults, and go to war. Such was the result of their endless discussion and tireless debate. It never settles anything. How do we solve things then? Benjamin makes it clear. Now, my brethren, as ye have kept my commandments, ye also keep the commandments of my father, and have prospered. And have been kept from falling into the hands of your enemies, you no know, prosperity and victory, been kept from falling into the hands of your enemies. Even so ye shall keep the commandments of my son. Or the commandments of God which shall be delivered unto you by him. See, you'll keep my you've kept my father's commandments, you keep mine, I'll keep the commandments of my son, which are really those which God has given him. You shall prosper in the land and your enemies shall have no power over it. It repeats those two things, see the, the same thing. This looks like a bald theocracy. Father and son stays in one family, we tell you what to believe and so forth. Isn't that at all? His heavy emphasis on his own mediocre qualifications and the right of the people to receive revelation for themselves, along with the royal family, is a different thing entirely. They too can say, and they would quote them, and we ourselves also, through the manifestations of his Spirit, have great views of that which is to come. And were it expedient, we could prophesy all things. We have the same power. You have the same visions you do. They choir out in unison. Unisonly explain why, how that was done, you see. Here the people receive their individual revelations. Prophecy means both. They could prophesy all things, they say. Prophecy means to foretell and speak out. But here there is a contrary to fact for a future less vivid condition. The individual is expected each to receive and follow the promptings of the Spirit for himself, but not to introduce his personal uh, his personal revelations into public insofar as it is expedient. If it were expedient, then you you, know, you could go out and tell people But it is not expedient. We do it through one, through one leader, you see, because we're, we're assured that notice they take such pains to make sure that they're all of the same mind, that people think exactly as the kingdom, then they're in the clear. But he's not forcing his thoughts on anybody and uh, or, or keeping them in the family. He says, we're expedient. People say, if it was expedient, we could prophesy too. So there's no jealousy there. They all have the same thing. Benjamin feels very strongly that people have been on the wrong path in their confrontation with politics. Two one thirty two, he if they continue that way, they will die in their sins and receive everlasting punishment is it. In engaging in partisan debate, ye do withdraw yourself from the Spirit of the Lord, that it may have no place in you to guide in wisdom's path. There's a real omnipresent danger in society. And now, O oh man, he says, remember and perish not. The danger is perennial. If you do not watch yourselves, and your thoughts, and your words, and your deeds, to the end of your lives, you must perish, We are in constant danger, liable to slip into this partisan controversy in which we are reveling today. This seems contrary to what we've been taught about the importance of debate, the two-party system, and so forth, but Benjamin is above all that. He wants to transfer our whole activity to another plane. Put your faith in that which is to come, he says, which was spoken of by the mouth of the angel. See. He He's not inventing this. He got it from the angel. This is the one who must follow. Benjamin states it bluntly. Believe that man doth not comprehend all the things the Lord can comprehend. What you have to do, we say, is to believe that you must repent of your sins. Now, this is what you do have to do. Repent of your sins, humble yourselves before God, and ask in sincerity of heart that he will forgive you. Does that sound authoritarian? We seem to forget that this record was handed not only to Benjamin, but was also handed to Joseph Smith by an angel from another sphere. It comes to us that way. That's what that's what we're obliged. Well what obliges us to follow. It's its purpose is to help prepare us for that other sphere. Do not expect to be like it to be like other texts, conservative or liberal. Benjamin pleads desperately, all ye old men, also ye young men, even your little children, old enough to understand, he says, awake to a remembrance of the awful situation of those who have fallen into transgression. Plainly things have reached a dangerous state. They have wandered from the one road of keeping the commandments, both temporal and spiritual, he says. What we should be after is not to gain advantage in this world, but to dwell with God in a state of never-resting ending happiness. Now, what more can you ask than that? That's what we're after, not to get one up and ship over each other. He knows that it will sound unrealistic. That sounds from our worldly vantage point as some faraway wishful thinking of fancy. Benjamin brings us around. Oh, remember, remember, these things are true. And this is real. He says, they're not imaginary. It's the everyday world, the light of common day, is the point. That is the deception. Far from being expected to accept these things on authority, though, the people are presently given to see it all for themselves. Now, the word power occurs 400 times in the Book of Mormon, just about. Over 400 times. Power is the essence of politics, where the object of the game is to be the party or or individual in power. This, yes, even though few would challenge Talleyrand's famous maxim, all power corrupts. But Benjamin in his speech on government and national policy he uses the world only seven times, five times refer to God whom he says has all power. And the other two passages speak only of power which no man possesses, the power to express our full obligation to God, and the other power is that which our enemy do not have against us if we obey the commandments. Only two cases of power he uses and one one that doesn't exist and the other that doesn't exist. What does power, what power does that leave to feeble man? There are only two sources of power. This one is God and the other, the evil one who covers power. Satan sought that I should give unto him my power. Remember in ether here. given unto him my own power. By the power of my only begotten, I caused that he should be cast down. Well, that's, that's from uh, the Moses 4 and 3. What he wanted was power over others. And so it has ever been with man. From Cain on, oaths given by them of old, who also sought power, they were kept up by the power of the devil to administer these oaths unto people, to keep them in darkness, to help such as sought power to gain power. Whatever nation shall uphold such secret combinations to get power and gain, they shall be destroyed. Suffer not that these murderous combinations shall get above you, which are built up to get power and gain. Well, I don't want to have anything to do with power in that case. Power and gain is never going to go together. Well, how remarkable that a royal discourse on the subject of government and dominion never once refers to power. This is Benjamin speaking, though it's referred all through the Book of Mormon It's the power of God, of course. He tells people bluntly that he never wanted their money. He could get all that was sufficient for his needs by working on the farm. And this total shifting of values takes us to the subject of the atonement. Now we come to the hard part. Well, the politics of shame. The atonement (coughs) requires a totally different state of mind that which men suppose leads to success. Benjamin makes direct appeal to the hearts of men. In case after case, he teaches what suggests the politics of shame, as it's called now. The term has been revived in a recent book by one Stuart Schneiderman, and the word was suddenly coming to general use by politicians against each other, and I noticed the last few months. It is a sense of shame that keeps people from stepping over the line and doing mean and ignoble things. Benjamin knew that, when he said that every man's immortal soul should awake to a lively sense of his own guilt, his breast filled with guilt and pain and anguish, like an unquenchable fire, the result was which is never-ending torment. Nothing could be farther from today's epic, which is to feel shame for an opponent, but when an opponent doesn't call public attention to it. This relieves the inner tension on both sides, and since the great American Cultural Revolution, we're quoting the author now, Schneiderman, obnoxious and insulting behavior became acceptable. Ostentatious displays of, that is, since the 1960s, <laughs> ostentatious displays of wealth were good, as were exhibitionistic displays of one's sexual prowess. Rude language became a sign of freedom. Fame more highly valued than shame. Seeing omens of destruction everywhere, we grasp at solutions offered by the guilt culture. More, po- more police, more courts, more prisons, more litigation, more regulation, more lawyers, and all of that is shameful. In pointing his way for his people, the way for his people, Benjamin cites case after case where their own immediate reaction should be one of shame. Believe, man, that man does not comprehend all things that the Lord can comprehend. That would make me feel quite, quite seepish, ashamed of my own arrogance and reaction. Is to that, as he says, believe that you must repent, humble yourselves before God, and ask in the sincerity of your heart that he would forgive you. Does God have to argue his case? Not if he had known of his goodness and tasted of his love. That's another feeling. Taste, like shame, is a final argument. De disputandum. De gustibus non disputandum. There is no argument about taste. We are the first and last and only judges of our taste and our shame as far as that We stand before God, says Alma, we shall have a bright recollection of our guilt. We don't need anyone else to judge us. When you compare that shame, when you compare the greatness of God and your own nothingness, we're quoting Benjamin again, and his goodness and long-suffering toward you, unworthy creatures, the shame will bring you to the depths of humility. Is it not shameful that you should have a mind to injure one another, that you should let your children go hungry, transgress the laws of God, and fight among themselves, giving way to the evil spirit? How shameful it is to turn your back on the beggar with some self-serving rationalization. He has brought it on himself. How do you know that you brought in all of yourself? And you were beggar yourself for shame. It's necessary to pass a law against holding back on sharing what God has given you liberally. That necessary. Or to use verse 27, that all these things be done in wisdom and in order, that a man should not run faster than his strength as an excuse for withholding your substance until a later time. What is it that prompts us to return what we have borrowed? Is it fear of a lawsuit? That's the 28th verse here. Well, eight years ago, I wrote a 60-page article on the meaning of the Atonement. thought it might be over. Answer no questions. Have I anything to add since? Was there ever a discussion on the Atonement that didn't leave questions hanging? Students today are asking the obvious but hard questions. First of all, why should we be punished, they say, in the spirit of the times? We all make mistakes. Why not simply write them off, as the saying goes, and get on with our lives? Making more mistakes. In the ancient tragedies, the play normally begins with something seriously wrong in the city. What shall we do? Plainly, someone has sinned. The price must be paid to put things right. Why? Why the price? Because we can't just let things slide. If we assume that things just happen, then we have to renounce our claim and privilege to free agency and the exercise of intelligence. The normal reaction to calamity is to ask who or what is responsible, so we can avoid it in the future. Since the king is responsible for the welfare of the people, he's often held responsible. The king must die was the ancient slogan, or else that was the sacrifice of your kings. Oedipus refused to play the role, you see. Instead, he made himself the head of a committee to investigate who it was who had sinned. was himself who wanted to avoid it. But we soon realized that the whole society is suspect. We all let it happen. We all failed to act when we could have, could have and should have noted that things were not running smoothly. Our mistakes are so many and so natural that nothing but divine revelation or, or the oracle can fix the blame. The only solution for us is the scapegoat. That is, we select impartially someone from among us by lot, and he'll be responsible for the whole lot. He'll pay for the rest of us. Well, is that fair? We punish ourselves. We can't wipe out the whole society. We punish ourselves by making a sacrifice of someone else. Is that punishing yourself? Yes, it is. If that someone is something you receive you esteem greatly and something love very much something you identify with the family and the the, the lamb the family sacrifice was a pet lamb it, it, it hurt to do it you see as far as that goes and during the rites of the sacrifice the scapegoat the bull up of the sin offering the sprinkling of the blood and the atonement which each man as leviticus says makes for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of israel when they do that ye shall afflict your souls When you do that, afflict is anah, anah, which means to humble yourself, grovel, be afflicted. You know They've got to suffer too, is the point. You're not getting out of it just because you have a scapegoat, let that go out and take care of you. You afflict your souls, that's important. You must do it. And do no work at all, for on that day shall a priest make atonement for you, to cleanse you. It shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. ever. That affliction means that everyone must enter into the spirit of the thing with heart and soul it's not getting off easily and that's where the blood comes in too adam was commanded not to sin they bring this one up too yet he was expected to sin is that fair the alternative is to make it impossible for him to sin programming programming him against it would that be good yes that would be good for robots and not for anybody else remember we're told the Son of Man, in Matthew, in Joseph Smith, price. the Son of Man is one who takes a far journey. He goes and leaves his house when he takes a long trip. He's leaving them alone on their own. We're not visited by the Lord daily to see how they would behave. He said he delayed his coming. He deliberately put it off, made it longer and longer. And when he came, he caught them completely by surprise. That was his idea, to find each one doing what he would be doing. Remember, he will come as a thief in the night. You don't know. To catch you in your normal daily routine. What did he find? The inequality in his household, the servants were beating each other, the strong were taking advantage of the weaker, they were beating, they were, uh, they, they were, he says, they were drinking with the drunken and uh, taking all their perks and so forth while they, they oppressed and, and beat and took advantage of their fellow servants. This is the very thing that Benjamin's talking about. You're not paying for you, you're not cheating, he's talking about the economy, you know, things people act normally, the things you should be ashamed of, this isn't some lofty spiritual principle, says, when the Lord comes, what's he going to find? He's going to find one person taking advantage of another, stealing his wages, making over work, and uh, living high himself. Oh, he develops that, you know. Well, the Smith uh, says the Atonement is the center of our religion. All else is a mere appendage, he says. Yet, though appendages are understood, the center still eludes us. We understand the appendages better than we understand the center. The first question asks, how, in a manner, in, well, this is uh, President Taylor asks, he says, is this mysteriously incomprehensible how Jesus assumed responsibility? How did he do it? Mysteriously and incomprehensible. And the two big questions, how he could suffer for another, and the other one is, which another general authority finds incomprehensible and inexplicable, <coughs> nearly <coughs> How well, he could extend that, that substitution measure, to everybody. Now one man could suffer for anybody. And these ideas, incidentally, and then uh, <clears> the <throat> suffering were common in ancient times when sacrifice meant blood sacrifice. And blood sacrifice. The blood is important to show that you're in innocence. You really mean it. You have to have that if you don't reach that point. You're just going through the motions. These ideas were common in ancient times when sacrifice meant blood sacrifice. Since this has been done away with, the terminology has become puzzling. Why the insistence on blood, we ask? Because where sacrifice is concerned, only the blood means that we are going all the way. It is the blood of the Lamb and the High Priest's robe that announces that the atoning sacrifice has been made and the garments washed clean. But atonement is ever the one theme bringing together of all in one, and the Lord with each other. It means that we all share in all things. The Lord shares with us, his work, and glory, and immortality. as we Remember in Moses 1.39. What do we do with it? We pass it on as he does. The ancients saw light and life coming from the sun. Every creature that receives that light and life must pass it on to others. Just so, he who receives the bounty of God must pass it on. As we are dependent on others to receive it, still others are dependent on us. Are we not all beggars, a line of beggars? That's the way he puts it. That's no mere rhetorical question. We receive what we have not produced, and we must pass it on, and not block up the water in the canal and divert it all to our own use. For the earth, as we read in Hebrews, for the earth drinketh the rain that cometh upon it, and bringeth forth herbs and meat for all by whom it is cultivated, and receives the blessing from God, it hands it on, it hands it on uh, to the fruits and vegetables, who go with it is handed on to the cultivator, to the farmer himself, and so forth, and he hands it on. He hands it on in the sacrifice here. Wherefore receive ye, it goes on, wherefore receive ye one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. You receive one another. If we block the gifts that come to us and fail to pass them all, we'll be frustrating the plan of salvation. The sun is only one of the countless participants in the pouring forth of energy into the cosmos. According to Abraham, worlds without number, he said, I could not see the end thereof. And they're all dependent on each other. So that when one perishes, we're told, as this, as uh, Enoch beheld, all the heavens weep, and all the workmanship of my hands, God Himself worth Without number have I created them all. My creations, there is not such wickedness as among thy brethren. So this is wicked. But all the other worlds weep because they all share in it. They all, they all suffer with it, and God Himself weeps. So closely are they bound with each other's affection. He says, I gave them commandments that they should love one another, but behold, they are without affection. And they hate their own blood. But what happens with these same people is, the Lord goes down and preaches to them. or wicked in the days of Noah, the same ones. They too must be brought back, if they're willing to accept the gospel. And it'll take a long time and lots of suffering. The Lord puts Himself out with all that to, to do all that, and this is the spirit of the whole thing. We must must the process be a painful? People ask this. Why all the pain and bloodshed? We've seen that point A, the word pain. Point A, pain is both. Well, it's the root of penitence, repentance, penitentiary, pain, punishment. And when you repent, when you repent, you must feel pain. That's, that's the essence of it. And it is a feeling. It's not, not a, nothing from, you get from a calculator. It's a feeling. The leading figure of each dispensation, Adam, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joseph Smith, they all suffered terribly. We can't go into that, but each one had to go through for the sins of the people. The Lord isn't the only one, but he is the only one who can bear it all on himself. And that's the mystery. It was he who, according to Benjamin, sweat blood from every pore, so great shall be his anguish. Anguish for what? Not for the brutality of the Roman soldiers, but, he says specifically, for the wickedness and abominations of his people. We find it incomprehensible, but we can comprehend the blood. Why are we forced to contemplate the gory details of the atonement? People ask me that. After the story of Jesus has been discreetly and modestly told in the Gospels, why suddenly in the last week, the Passion Week, is all thrown open to public view, even the private and secret sessions with the apostles, the prayers in the garden, the trial, the flagellation, the crown of thorns, aco homo, via doloroso, the dicing for the garment, and finally the elevation on the cross, unsparingly held up to our horrified view, brazenly exposed to the non. Hmm. It's a, it's, a, it's a displeasing, disquieting, embarrassing, mortifying situation. Where are the mysteries? Plainly, it was meant to be that way. The world must know about this. The world must be made to feel as far as it can feel. This is the way it must be done. And the only way it can be made to feel, if only a faint awareness of what was done on our behalf. Now as to the question, how can A suffer for B, it is the principle of proxy with which we are familiar, but how far does it go? Hmm? The second article of faith makes it clear that we have more than we can do to pay for our own sins. But the principle of substitution, representation, at oneness, applies atonement, you see, applies in other contexts. We say that we are to work for another in the temple. We take that person's name. He's supposed to be a relative so that we feel personally close to him. We could do more and harder work for the same person, searching out the records, seeking to recall his life and times with fond affection. Is there a limit to the pains we might take to be saviors on Mount Zion? We have personal feelings for these people. We think of them as anxiously awaiting for deliverance and uh, and an open way to progression. And so we put ourselves out to help them. We help others in distress when we visit them, bring them good news, pray for them, hold hands with them, bring them medicine and so forth. Can you suffer for another? You can take great pains to help. The uh, thinking of the late President George Albert Smith, as a young man of frail and aiming disposition. As people who knew him tell me, he worked zealously to salvage the unsavory down and outers whom others passed by undiscussed. Those who knew him have told me how he would get up at three o'clock of a winter's morning to go down to the police station and talk some poor bum out of committing suicide. Well, how can one suffer for all? This is the same question. Well, he must have, it must be someone who possesses the capacity to do that, and that really is a mystery. He has that peculiar capacity. This is the problem we're faced in science as well. W. Wheeler, when the scientists are asked, what is gravity? He he says it is a specific property of matter to act in a certain way. So the four other attractive forces is quite mysterious, yet we accept them, we adopt them, we put them to service and so forth, and so with the atonement. Uh, Three chapters in John make it perfectly clear uh, that equals can be substituted for equals in any operation. It's a complete mystery how the Father and Son could be one, how the apostles could be one with them, and how the saints could be one with the apostles and all share the Holy Ghost. It's the same, the same problem the scientists have to face. Well, said the Lord, When the multitude went forth and thrust their hands into his side and did feel the print of the nails and his hands and feet, how could one be closer? And this they did, going forth one by one. And when they had all gone forth and had witnessed for themselves, They'd cry out with one accord, saying, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Most High God. How do you explain such capacity to atone for the millions? This is the other mystery. The answer is that there are some that have a peculiar capacity for doing such things. He had the capacity. There are other people, there are men, who have capacities resembling that sort of thing. I think of my neighbor brother John Hayes, who's registered, is a neighbor, and he was registrar at BYU for 40 years and he remembered the name of every student who graduated and uh, what their main interests were and so forth because he was interested in them. That was all he had. He wasn't a superman. So if other people have capacities like that, why shouldn't the Lord have such? By analogy, we, we can be satisfied with them. And of course, as far as science is concerned, we don't know what the great forces are, the four great forces that hold things together. We know their effects, but no one has the remotest idea of what they are. So don't think we're going too far when we say, the atonement is done for all and binds all together in one we don't know what we're talking about because it's the effect and this in my testimony we all feel i've been talking about feeling and conviction here all along and our intimacy with the lord now we all have our own individual testimonies whether i will help you or not i don't know but i do have this testimony and it is true and the lord will unite us together he has blessed us all individually and collectively I pray that you may continue to do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.